Gia, Gia, Gia. Guess who's Bazak? <laughs> I know you've been waiting, and I'm back. It's your boy Elgin Bailey, host of the Page Turners. Each season, the text will be selected to read, discuss, critique, and to apply to our lives with the intent of changing the current state of predominantly black schools, neighborhoods, black families, and black lives. I know it's been a minute, family. Uh, I ain't forget about you. I have not let this go. This is a passion of mine that I'm excited about deeply. Uh, this is season three, episode one. Um, if you were with me before, man, you notice I was doing in season two, I was doing a reading from Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Uh, what a book, what a book. Let me read some of the awards this book has had won. And then I'm going to read the quick blurb. And then you know what? We're going to dive right in. Winner of the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award. Winner of the 2017 Pan and John Kenneth Gilbert Award. Winner of the 2017 Andrew Carnegie Medal. Winner of the 2017 Pan and New England Award. Winner of the 2016 Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award. Finalist for the 2016 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Finalist for the 2016 Kirkus Prize. Let me read the blurb. In Evicted, Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their heads, held as wrenching and revelatory the nation. Vivid and unsettling, New York Review of Books. Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. Its unforgettable scenes of hope and loss reminds us of the centrality of home without which nothing else is possible. I'm reading this book, man, in the midst of the world being devastated and decimated by the COVID-19 pandemic. This virus is running rampant in countries, continents, states, cities, towns, boroughs, counties. There's not been a place, man, where this pandemic has touched. One area that it has had a really, really, I can't even figure the, think of the word that I want to use here to describe the effects that it's had. Devastating, horrendous, evil effects it has had is on housing. Because people have not been able to provide for themselves via employment. A lot of businesses are closed. A lot of businesses have gone out of business. There has been a tremendous amount of loss 
And I'm not just talking about financially. I'm also talking about lives lost. But also people are losing their homes. People are being evicted. People are being forced out. And I would be remiss and unfair if I did not speak on how this pandemic is affecting landlords. Not just slumlords, because there's a whole lot of them motherfuckers out there. But also landlords who care about their tenants, who care about their business. They, in some cases, have not been paid. Not because tenants are unwilling, but because they're unable. Now, the CDC came through and they put a national eviction moratorium out. That is to end January 31st, 2021. Now, that's a problem because February 1st, all hell is going to break loose in a whole lot of people's lives. Newly elected President Joe Biden released his COVID-19 plan packet yesterday, actually. And in that plan, in that packet, he put a number of things out, uh, stimulus, child tax credit, all these different things. Uh, Google it. I'm sure you'll be able to find it rather rapidly. But the one thing that stood out to me that I was very excited about, man, was that he's pushing back. He's putting in place an eviction moratorium for up until, rather, excuse me, September 2021. So it's a number of months that have been added on to the moratorium that the CDC put in place. But my prayer is that by September 2021, this virus, this deadly virus, will be. Can you control a virus? Is that fucking possible to do? This virus, in some form or fashion, will be contained. We know we're doing the vaccination by the time September 21 comes around. There's going to be, I think, uh, I saw Dr. Fauci in an interview the other day mention that uh, he believed by the summer over 85% of the country would have been vaccinated. And that was one of the things that was in Joe Biden's plan was for... Uh, was billions of dollars being pushed forth to speed up and create a national vaccination program. Now, I don't know what the hell that is. I ain't going to lie to you. I'm not a politician. Don't play one on TV. Don't particularly like them motherfuckers either. But nonetheless, that's something that he has mentioned. And I speak on that because as we're reading Evicted, you'll see how devastating being evicted or poverty and profit in the American city really is. Capitalism is an unrelenting monster, man. Just an absolute fucking beast that is devouring people left and right.
And it's a real testament to how shitty things are that we're sitting back and waiting for a government to decide how they are going to provide for the people who voted for them. And these motherfuckers are people who don't have to worry about being evicted. They don't have to worry about providing for themselves. They don't have to worry about the things that working class, poor black folks have to worry about. It's some bullshit, to be honest with you. So as we dig into this book, man, we are starting this session's reading on page 86. And to do a recap of where we are, because I think that's only fair. Uh, and like with your favorite TV shows, you can <laughs> you can fast forward past the recap if your ass want to. Anyway, recap. Uh, where we left off last, we were talking about Scott and Teddy. Scott is a nurse who works in the medical field. Scott and Teddy fall behind on their rent after having a simple medical procedure. An injury set Scott on a spiral downward. Now, Scott got deeply impacted. And this is how a lot of this shit works, man. A lot of people are literally a simple medical procedure away from having their lives turn to shit to being evicted, to finding themselves in economic devastation. But the simple medical procedure that Scott faced, along with the death of two of his closest friends, along with a new found, new developed drug addiction to Percocet for the pain from the simple medical procedure, Next thing you know, Scott is siphoning fentanyl from patients in the nursing home that he worked at. So Scott finds his ass in a real deep, deep, dark spot, which is scary, unfair. And again, capitalism is an unrelenting beast. So we are going to finish. Uh, we might as well go ahead and finish this chapter it's only a few pages let's see how it goes uh this is chapter seven we should be able to get to chapter eight and let me begin reading they became friends scott Susie, and billy scott learned that Susie wrote poetry liked retelling stories of the days she dealt bricks of marijuana in the 70s and has shot heroin for the last 35 years Billy shot in his arms, Susie in her legs, which were so scarred and discolored, they made Scott squeamish. It sometimes took Scott, Susie rather, hours to find an opening. Damn. When she grew frustrated, Billy took the needle and forced it into her next jugular vein. Wowzer. Billy and Scott sometimes scrapped metal or collected cans to raise dope money. Black tar heroin was cheap. A balloon holding about a tenth of a gram went for 15 or $20. Other times, all three worked a hustle outside the mall. Billy was still something of value from a department store, using jewelry, usually jewelry. Susie would then return the item, acting like a dissatisfied customer who had misplaced a receipt. 
Because Susie had no receipt, the store manager would give her a gift certificate in exchange for the item. Susie would then hand a gift certificate to Scott, who would hawk it in the parking lot, selling it below value. He might sell an $80 gift certificate for $40, taking the $40 straight to Chicago, where Susie's favorite supplier lived. Now, this is a standard practice amongst addicts, man, because they're trying to find ways to get their addictions met. They will come up with incredibly ingenious ways of getting that fix. Back to the reading. Lenny had approved Susie and Billy's application to live in a trailer park just as he approved Scott and Teddy's. Lenny did all of Tobin's screening. He never did credit checks because there was a fee. He didn't call previous landlords because he figured most applicants just listed their mothers or friends. Lenny's screening consisted mainly of typing names into a CCAP. Now, this family is a really important piece right here. I want you to pay attention to this. CCAP stood for Consolidated Court Automation Programs. Like many states, Wisconsin believed its citizens were entitled to view the affairs of its criminal and civil courts. So free of charge, it provided a website that cataloged all speeding tickets, child support disputes, divorces, evictions, felonies, and other legal business. So there was a whole data system called the CCAP within Wisconsin, and many states have it, where all of your information is stored and people who came free of charge find it. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Eviction records and misdemeanors were displayed for 20 years. Felonies were displayed for at least 50. CCA PAP also reported dismissed evictions and criminal charges. If someone was arrested for never but never convicted, CCAP displayed a violation with this disclaimer. These charges were not proven and have no legal effect. Blank name is presumed innocent. And you know how problematic that is, man? You were arrested but never convicted. And their information about that arrest is still in the system. A system that a landlord can use to not rent for you so if this landlord has biases regardless of what biases it may be let's specifically say he has racial biases he thinks all black people are criminals he goes to the ccap and looks and find that you were arrested for shoplifting but the, you were never convicted because the data doesn't show that it wasn't you who actually shoplifted it was somebody else who got arrested, who looked something like you, that landlord can use that information against you for you not to get the house that you and your family need. That is some bullshit. Employers and landlords could come to their own conclusions. Of course they could. Among CCAP's frequently asked questions was this one. I don't want my private information on Wisconsin Circuit Court access. How can I get it removed? <laughs> an answer was provided. Eh, you probably can't. Ask Lenny if he ever found incriminating records when reviewing applications, and he would grin at the question and say, most of the time I find stuff. And if you asked him what kinds of records prevented someone from being approved, he would tell you that he turned down 
everyone with a drug charge or domestic violence offense. But both Susie and Billy had drug charges, and they weren't the only ones. Lenny got up early Sunday morning. Once Susie met up with him and Tobin picked him up both in a Cadillac, they were spending the day in Milwaukee's landlord training program. None of them wanted to go, but they didn't have a choice. Attending the program was part of Tobin's agreement with Alderman Witkowski, funded by the Department of Justice. The landlord training program began in the 1990s with the goal of keeping illegal and destructive activity out of rental property. A whole last government program was put to place to keep illegal and destructive activity out of rental properties. Tobin Lenny and Office Susie joined 60 or so other landlords in a large classroom in the Milwaukee Safety Academy on Tutanaria Avenue. At 9 a.m. sharp, a tall woman with broad shoulders and a dark suit stood up and announced, We start on time. We end on time. Karen Long, the program coordinator, began talking at a fast clip, hands clasped behind her back. What's the number one rule in real estate? Location, 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 Karen said. What's the number one rule for being a landlord? Screening, screening, screening. You have to do a number of things to find out who's been naughty and who's been nice. Karen turned to the room, told the room to collect an applicant's date of birth, to check his or her criminal record, and social security number to check his or her credit. And to require two pieces of identification, you need to require sufficient and verifiable income. If they say they are self-employed, well, drug dealers are self-employed. Karen brought up the CCAP. The landlords were also receiving an advertisement for screening works, which promised to provide the most comprehensive background information about your rental applications. So it's a whole industry out there that is created to screen possible tenants for whatever that a landlord can use to decide whether or not they want to rent to a particular person. For $29.95, landlords could obtain a report listing an applicant's eviction, criminal record, credit evaluation, previous addresses, and other information. Screening Works is a service of RentGrow, the advertisement read. RentGrow has 10 plus years of experience in multifamily resident screening and serves over half a million rental units a year. Ain't that some shit? What in the hell? Look, Karen said, if they have a recent court order eviction or delinquency, you're not going to rent to them. If they have have an eviction, what makes you think they're going to pay you? Damn. Herself a landlord, Karen paid attention to how someone looked at her unit. This point was repeated in the thick training manual landlords received at registration. Do they check out each room? Do they mentally visualize where the furniture will go? Which rooms the children will sleep in? Or how they'll make best use of the kitchen layout? Or do they barely walk in the front door before asking to rent, showing a surprising lack of interest in the details? People who make an honest living care about their home 
and often shared in a way that they look at the unit. Some who rent for illegal operations forget to pretend they have the same interests. These motherfuckers are trying to use psychology. Ain't that, Lord. The small act of screening could have big consequences. No. From thousands of yes-no decisions emerged a geography of advantage and disadvantage that characterized a modern American city, good schools and failing ones, safe streets and dangerous ones. Landlords were major players in distributing the spoils. They decided who got to live where. And their screening practices, or lack thereof, revealed why crime and gang activity or an area's civic engagement in a spirit of neighborhoodness could vary drastically from one block to the next. They also helped explain why on the same block in the same low-income neighborhood, one apartment complex, but not another, became familiar to the police. Screening practices that banned criminality and poverty in the same stroke drew poor families shoulder-to-shoulder with drug dealers, sex offenders, and other lawbreakers in places where lenient requirements. Damn. Neighborhoods marred by higher poverty and crime were that way not only because poverty could incite crime and crime could invite poverty, but also because the techniques landlords used to keep illegal and destructive activity out of rental properties kept poverty out as well. This also meant that violence, drug activity, deep poverty, and other social problems convalesced at a much smaller, more acute level than the neighborhood. They gathered at the same address. And just think about this for a second, man. One of the things that I've often stated when it comes to crime is this. People tend to commit crime for a variety of reasons. But one, three chief reasons people tend to commit crime in low socioeconomic environments. Okay? Because they're unemployed. Because they're unemployed. Because they're unemployed. Jobs are one of the greatest measures of whether someone will commit a crime. Because most crimes in low socioeconomic environments are crimes of necessity. Crimes of need. That's crucial to understand, man. Crucial. Okay? Let's read some of the questions that folks began to ask Karen in the midst of this damn training. Questions. Karen's eyes panned the room. Should I do a short-term or a long-term lease? First, do a lease. Please put it in writing between 60 and 70% of rental agreements in this state are verbal. And that's just bad business. A man in a camouflage hat raised his hand with a question about evictions. Do I have to leave them there for three months or some foolish thing? No. Nothing protects you from not paying the rent. Is there a maximum charge for a late fee? The room laughed nervously, and Karen frowned at the question. Can you go in any of the common areas, the hallways, the open basement without notice? Karen paused for effect. She smiled at the woman who asked the question. She was a black woman, probably in her 50s who has sat in the front row and taken notes throughout the day. What is the answer, Karen asked the room. Yes, came the reply from several fellow landlords. 
Karen nodded and looked back at the woman. Okay, say this with me. This is my property. This is my property, the woman responded. This is my property, Karen said it louder and raised her hands, inviting the room to echo. This is my property, the landlords answered. This is my property, Karen boomed, her finger pointing to the land below. The voices in the room went up in a unison, a proud and powerful chorus. This is my property. This is my property. My property. Let's go back to that question that the lady asked, Karen. <laughs> Can you go in any of the common areas, the hallways, the open basement without any notice? All the landlord's answers was yes. But I don't believe that's the law. I believe that the law states that the landlord has to have permission if there is a lease. I'm not, I'm not sure. But that's definitely something to look into. Wowzer. After receiving the eviction notice, it took Teddy a couple of days to decide it was time to go home to Tennessee. He called one of his sisters who told him that she'd be sending her husband up with the van. Teddy sent her a $500 money order. I don't want to go to them broke, he told Scott, which also told him his money was gone. Scott saw that he needed a plan. So he rang up Pedo an old Narcotics Anonymous buddy, and asked if he had any work. Pedo connected Scott with Myra, a take-no-shit lesbian from Puerto Rico, who offered him a cleaning job out cleaning out foreclosed homes. Myra paid Scott and the other crew in cash. The amounts varied widely. Scott didn't understand or ask why. They gave scrappers the metal and sold some of the values here and there, hauling the rest to the dump. Scott was stunned by what folks left behind. Sofas, computers, stainless steel ranges, children's clothes with tags on them, tricycles, holiday decorations and basement bins, frozen pork chops, cans of green beans, sheeted mattresses, file cabinets, framed posters and prayers and inspirational verses, curtains, blouses on hangers, lawnmowers, pictures. Sometimes a house were humble and squat with cracked windows and grease on the ceiling. Sometimes they were cavernous with thick carpet, master bedrooms, and back decks. To Scott, it felt like the whole city was being tossed out. Damn. Sometimes you walk into a house and it's like they just walk out with the clothes on their back. Man, that's how it is when you get evicted, homie. Scott was saying over another breakfast beer with Teddy. It had been roughly a week since they had received their eviction notice. There's some profundity in it that I don't understand yet. I wish I can go to work, Teddy answered. I wish I can be outside and work, but the shape that I'm in. Scott wasn't interested in the work, but the wreckage. I can't figure out what happened to the people, he continued. It's really... He let the word flap. Scott, Teddy says, slowly and turning toward him. You're just like my family. I hate to leave you, but I'm headed back home. <laughs> I don't even like you, Scott responded with a grin. I know that's a lie. I know you don't want to see me go, but I know you know it's got to be done. Around sunrise Saturday morning, a white van pulled up to the trailer. Scott placed a bag of Teddy's clothes and his fishing gear in the back and helped his old friend into the passenger seat. 
Teddy's bendless arm raised in a quiet goodbye, as if a string, as the van pulled away under a Harley Davidson orange sky. Damn. The following evening around dusk, while Scott was out with the Myers crew, people started raiding his trailer. Teddy was gone, and everyone in the trailer park knew that Scott would be soon. They started small, taking shirts, movies, jackets, and backpacks. Then they went for the larger items, carrying out the table and couch. Crucifixion, Pittman. Lorraine's brother-in-law, Lane, a skinny man with dark hair, a gold necklace, watched from his daisy yellow trailer. Buzzards, he said, shaking his head. You better close your mouth when you sleep, or these people will steal the gold right out of your teeth. When Scott got home that night and realized what had happened, he rushed to check if the plastic container in his room the one stuffed with photos, diplomas, and memories, and hard evidence that he had once been someone was still there. It was. They had taken the bed, but left the box. It felt like a gift. Scott had walked slowly from room to room, noticing what had been snatched and what was unwanted even by the desperate. No one took the books or the Polaroid camera but they had collected the empty beer cans to recycle. Scott fingered the remainders like he sometimes did in foreclosed homes, studying them as if they were dug-up artifacts or fossils. He thought of the last home he had cleaned out that night. From the outside, it looked like any other home, but inside, he had found a stripper's pole attached to a homemade stage encircled by couches. Hardcore pornography was strewn everywhere. There were three bedrooms upstairs. Two were covered in more smut. Scott opened the door to the third and stared down at a twin bed, toys, and half-finished homework. Damn. Most abandoned homes left him few clues about the people who had lived there. As he went about his work, Scott would fill in the rest, imagining laughter around the dinner table, sleeping, faces in the morning, a man shaving in the bathroom, this last house told him his own story. Thinking of that one bedroom, Scott sat down on his empty floor in his gutted-out trailer and wept. Damn. My man Scott was at work, grinding to try to stay from being evicted or just trying to stay afloat. The eviction notice had already come, but he was just trying to make it. And while he was out, because people knew how bad a situation, the bad a shape he was in, they came in and took all of his stuff. They took all of his stuff and left behind the, the, the books and the Polaroids and the bin with all of Scott's important things. And he came in and he looked and he saw the bin with the important things. And he felt like it was a gift, man. Felt like it was a gift. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, in closing, thank you for tuning into Page Turners with me, Elgin Bailey. May the pages you read assist in creating the change you need. Till next time.